when does a regular old race car driver become a good race car driver? To continue the theme, when does a good driver turn into a great driver? And when does one of the best become the best? We can't really answer that definitively. After all, it's different for every situation. Was Richard Petty great when he won his first race or his last race? Was A.J. Foyt the best when he won at Indy or Daytona or Le Mans? The process by which the greatest of their time become the greatest of all time isn't exactly easy to figure out. But along the way, there are certainly moments that define excellence. Points in time that allow everyone to acknowledge, perhaps for the first time, that they are watching something they may never see again. Today on Stagger, we're going to talk about how one of the greatest race car drivers in history leveled up his legendary status at the 1982 Knoxville Nationals. Turns of loose coming into the front stretch. Tommy changed the entire throttle system last night, the night before a race. But, oh, he can't do that. But we want to thank you tonight for these mighty machines that you brought before. Welcome to Stagger. I'm J.D. Smith, and along with my brother Derek Smith, we are so glad you have found this podcast. It's a bi-weekly motorsports history podcast, so every couple weeks we'll put out a new episode looking back on some of our favorite moments or legends or stories from motorsports. And we're excited about today's topic, which of course involves the Knoxville Nationals. We are huge fans of this race. We'll talk about that more in a second. Also, wanted to start highlighting the reviews that we get online. Um, These are all from the Apple Store. You know, you can find us on Apple Podcasts along with every other podcast app, but Apple Podcasts is one of the places where you can actually leave a review. Uh, So we got a review that I wanted to highlight here. Five-star review from CBlaine14. says, great stories, great storytelling. I'm a pretty casual race fan. And I don't get to watch every race every week. I love that this podcast focuses on stories rather than breaking down the week's races. For me, it's the history and origins that make racing so intriguing. Stagger captures that and does an awesome job telling the stories. Thank you for that. If you want to be featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast, just leave us a nice review and uh, maybe we'll highlight it there. Also, foreshadowing, there may be a contest involving reviews. More on that in this week's episode. Before we get into the episode, one quick reminder, if you want to interact with us more, you can jump on Twitter or Instagram at Stagger Podcast. On Instagram, I've been posting quite a few photos from racetracks that I've been going to. I ended up running into a lot of vintage racing at dirt tracks over the last couple weeks, so shout out to those guys. It's really cool to see some of these old cars back on the track, but you can check that out on Instagram, and of course on Twitter, we're always talking about anything going on with motorsports at Stagger Podcast on Twitter. All right, Derek, what do you think of when I say the Knoxville Nationals? Well, I know a lot about it now, but at one point I thought it was a race in Tennessee. Not going to lie. Oh, when I first heard Knoxville, (laughs) I thought, oh, so they race because, you know, you think of racing Tennessee, the South, like, you know, you think, all right, that's probably where that is. Right. You don't think (laughs) about Iowa. I didn't even know there was a Knoxville, Iowa until I heard about the race. Yeah, I I, I think Knoxville, I think the race put Knoxville on the map, not the other way. Yeah, so, I don't think Knoxville was like this huge city, and then it was it, like, well, we should put the track there because people already know it. Right. Like, I mean, maybe in Iowa it is, but... If only um, Brooklyn would have had that concept. Could you imagine it being like a dirt track right in the middle of Manhattan or Brooklyn? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, catch, let's catch a seven line. We're going to go over to... What to are you... Track. Hey, what are you doing this week? I'm going to watch Donnie's shots. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> this f***ing guy. Holy <laughs> That'd be Larson's, I hear Larson's coming tonight. <laughs> that's well. Now that's in Boston. That's in Boston. That's, Wait, hey, Kyle Larson's gonna be here. Kyle Larson, you know him? Christopher it's Bell. Good. It's like a modern day AJ John. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, there. Well, there is like South Boston in Virginia. <laughs> in Virginia, so, <laughs> we should do an episode of all the tracks that are like up name ways hey isn't michigan it's in brooklyn, brooklyn michigan it is in brooklyn hey, michigan. hey my guy what are you doing over here get the fuck out of here brooklyn you don't know nothing about brooklyn michigan my yeah, guy you know our our, our 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 guy down the road brad keselowski you know <laughs> new york to the core we're just doing terrible new york accents now anyway. eric jones another guy hey put your f- mitten out look right here that's brooklyn michigan that's where i come from <laughs> for those of you that are that don't live in the midwest that's a that's a thing if you're from michigan usually when you're talking to you someone and with, telling yeah, them you where you're your at hand. you're like oh if, you, if this is the hand if you're detroit you're right between your index and your thumb and that little piece of meat right there the moose live up by the fingertips that's that's all i know i like how we've decided our brooklyn accent is just swearing for all the parents out there that have been like finally a podcast i can listen to in the car with the kids we're sorry yeah, well, we're sorry. We're it, not. You know, every now and then, we're, 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 you yeah. know what? We're not sorry. We're not sorry. Sorry, sorry. Hashtag sorry. You, not sorry. you know what? Find some time away from your kids. I have three of them. He has two of them. We get it. Get away from your kids for a little bit. It's all right. You need that. That's what we're doing right now. We're hiding from our children. That's At why we're doing this podcast. in the morning. That's, that's in a basement. Exactly right. Podcast. <laughs> they don't people. even know we're here. We're trying to be as quiet as possible. <laughs> all right. So we're going to talk about the Knoxville Nationals. We're going to talk about why I believe, Derek, that the Knoxville Nationals in 1982 was one of the most important races in sprint car history. Yeah. First, let me give you a little backstory on Knoxville and this time period in sprint car racing. And I will tell you, a lot of what we go into today is information that I gleaned from an issue of Open Wheel Magazine from December of 1982. So if you would like to go peruse eBay and purchase this, I highly recommend buying old racing magazines because there's just something about flipping through, seeing the old advertisements, reading some of this stuff that a lot of these articles are not being posted and and archived online. You know what I mean? Like it was before that time. It's it's that sweet spot between this article is almost forty years old. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's a physical hey, document. Eighty five. Do you know anybody who was born in nineteen eighty two? Uh, I know one guy. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So that guy also <laughs> probably knows what it's like to be close to forty years old. Anyway, let's talk about Knoxville and a lot of this. Like I said, the info comes from Open Wheel Magazine. Uh, Dick Bergren wrote a lot of the info that we are going to talk about today because that's what Dick Bergen was doing back in those days. Legendary reporter. We love Dick Bergen. So we we're, we're happy to bring you some of what he said back we in the day. We love Dick. Knoxville is a half mile dirt track. Half a mile for those not as familiar with sprint cars. That's about as big as you're going to get for sprint car dirt tracks. Terre Haute, half mile. Williams Grove, half mile. Eldora. Those are all half mile tracks. There are bigger tracks like DuCoin and Springfield out in Illinois. Mm -hmm. Those are mile dirt tracks. There used to be the Syracuse Mile. That was also a big deal, but that I don't believe is a thing anymore. 
But anyway, primarily the biggest tracks that sprint cars go to are the half miles. So these are the most dangerous tracks because they're so big. That's the fastest you're going to see a sprint car go. Of course, that means more danger. So at this time, death was a big thing in not just auto racing, but sprint cars. It feels weird, Derek, because I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of podcasts tend to have things that they come back to themes that they seem to just slam into all the time. Yep. One we tend to slam into a lot here is safety in race cars. Death. Death. Yes, unfortunately, but that's what happens when you look back on racing. Yeah, that that is racing history where, I mean, I I can't remember if it's Richard Petty. There's a, it it might be someone at IndyCar, but there's a quote associated and it's great that I don't know the person is that said it, but they were like, yeah, you just lived every week and enjoyed life because you never know when one of your buddies is going to be dead. Yes, that that is exactly kind of the mentality that people had at this time. So I'm going to read from that sprint car or for that open wheel magazine. There's an article by a guy named John Sawyer. The title of the article is sprint car racing. How far to the wild side? And the picture literally look. How would you describe that picture Derek, um, of that's well, in this magazine? You have bit frames. There's a drive shaft that's sticking the opposite way of where it should be. It's a I sprint see, car that's upside down. I see a head about an inch from the ground, and it's to the side, and it's hitting the rail <sighs> of the of the, the the safety rail above the car. This is a non-wing sprint car. Yeah, this is pretty terrifying. Yeah, and this is just these are some of the photos, the racing photos that they have to illustrate just how awful this racing can be, right? Here's what John Sawyer said, again, from 1982. Tell me if you've read a lot of articles written like this recently. Here we go. Having been around the fire-breathing cars for 30-plus years, I can offer this observation. A sprint car circuit sooner or later will give you a full-tilt look at racing gone bad. Sort of like watching your beautiful lady being carted off to a methadone clinic, her body twitching convulsively. Go ahead, death dealer. Ring up another closed account on your stinking cash register. Hey, you creep. How about three rings, at least, for Schweikert, Captain Crunch, and Doc Dawson to name a few? Three rings, crud, because they used to laugh right in your slime-draped face. Still, laughing can never automatically top card dying. I love sprint cars, their wild antics, their graceful broad slides. It can be looked at as the best of things. Nevertheless, I respect them. And I fear them too. Everyone should. They'll chew the innards out of the bravest man. Welcome to the racetrack, kids. Like this and, is and welcome to the eighties. <laughs> right. Like this I, is this crud. is the era where yeah, Written, crud. Yeah, like hey, creep. It's like when your dad and your dad's friends are talking as a kid, and you're like, oh, they're so cool because they're like my dad. And then there's like this moment where you realize, like, oh wow, they're dads. They're dads. Old. They're not cool. So yeah. it's just it's a different time and it's kind of but what the the measure of what he was saying and the, the the substance is the death is ringing just around every corner it seems and you never know if you're going to be talking to one driver and the next time and I've seen this at sprint car races that I've been to thank god no one's died but you'll be sitting there looking at a car 5 feet away from you it goes out for a heat or a you know an, an A main or a B main and it comes literally 5 minutes later on the back of a tow truck mangled to almost where you can't see the sponsors you were just looking at five minutes ago. And a lot of people talked about that in in all the stuff I've ever read about sprint car history and all the articles you go back and in, in doing research for the show. Everyone kind of has this way of talking about what they're about to do. I don't I don't it's not like it's a hobby, right? Because it's super important to them. But it's almost like life is the hobby. Racing is the thing. 
You know what I mean? Where it's like, well, I'm going to race 100%. Everyone knows that. If I live or die, well, who can say? You know, I may I may not be right. living much after this, but I am going to race. Like they're they're resigned to the fact that they have to race, but they may or not may or may not make it yeah. out of the race. I, and that's like, just such a weird it's the other way now, yeah. I would hope, for most people. It's it, like, it I'm is. not going to let racing ruin my life mm. for most people. Some people still, you well, know, it, obviously It, it has changed. There has been more perspective, but I will tell you this. It is the most addictive drug. For, well, and that's for us as fans. I assume when you're no. in the car, it's got to be even more. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's like we drive four hours to a track and get back home at 3 a.m. And we're like, yep, was totally worth it. And then these drivers flip upside down. I've had a friend who is close. I'm close to their family. I've taken photos for their sister at their wedding. Like I'm pretty dang close to this driver and their family. And they flipped one time at a track and their, their head was about six inches away from a concrete wall. If it wasn't for foam on the outside of, uh, uh, of the track, it would have been a bad deal. And that person walked away and, and, Two, two days later, they're back racing again. Yeah, and that and is that is still in the modern times where yeah. you have all these safety precautions. That was like three years ago. <laughs> so part of why I say this Knoxville race was so important is because at this time in the early 80s in sprint car racing, there's a big battle going on. The big battle is should sprint cars have wings or no wings? Mm. Here's a little bit of why that is the case. This I'm going to read you an article from May 1st, 1982, and this one involves a driver sadly dying. Newton Daily News and Iowa newspaper. After two false starts, the green flag finally waved and 22 anxious drivers mashed the gas, bringing the cars to life. It was a beautiful sight as the colorful cars rocketed down the front stretch, battling for position. Suddenly, things went terribly wrong. A black car toward the front of the pack flipped violently down the front stretch, cars ducking and diving to get out of the way. A red car launched high in the air, sending the flagmen running for cover. Another car barrel rolled into the infield. Only moments before the air was full of fun and excitement, now replaced with deafening silence. The smiles were replaced with shock. A piercing scream penetrated the air as horrified onlookers saw what was left of a brave driver lying on the track in front of the flag stand. Gary Scott from Holmut Summit, Missouri, died right there on Knoxville's black ribbon of dirt. His safety harness had failed, allowing him to eject from the safety of his cockpit. Cliff Woodward and the driver launched above the green lights, hanging above the track. His Shady Oak Steakhouse special was a wad of crumpled steel. Cliff and Ricky Weld, the other drivers involved, would spend weeks in the hospital recovering. So this accident was preceded at Knoxville by accidents with uh, Daryl Dolly, which we mentioned earlier, Roger Larson, Dick Stone King. All these men were killed within the last three years at Knoxville, all of them in non-wing sprint cars. They say this accident, though, the one that sadly killed Gary Scott was so horrific that veteran ambulance workers were shaken by it. Local track officials had seen enough and they decided they were going to mandate wings at Knoxville. So oddly enough, wings back in the day were seen as a safety component and still are, I guess. Right. Most people understand that. Um, You've heard drivers talk about how wings are like a a safety aspect because you have a if you've never seen a wing sprint car, even if you have, they're they're five by five giant metal feet. pieces. Yeah, five feet by five feet. Feet. 25 yeah. square feet of metal above your head that isn't necessarily... There's a lot of reasons for wings. We'll get to that in a second. Imagine um, imagine an F1 car, the, that rocket ship, not having a halo, but having literally a covering of five, or maybe proportionally three by three above its head. 
angled to allow for some downforce slash, you know, weight to help the car stay stuck to the track. Yeah. But it would be that's how revolutionarily different this looked. I mean, this is probably one of those things that they saw at a like, hey, and now here comes the wing sprint cars, you know, like years before as like some gimmick. Mm-hmm. And now it's like this is the only thing that we can do to keep our sport alive is put yeah. a wing on a car. Well, and that's that. So that's an interesting point. So let's back out a little bit further. In the late 60s, one of the big arguments in sprint car open wheel racing was, should these cars have a roll cage over the driver component? And if you've ever seen that, it's like four posts and a halo kind of thing that goes over the top, top of the driver. Fuel, yeah, but this wasn't, this wasn't like an arch going over them. This was more like four posts. Think of like the little thing you get in your pizza the little white <laughs> yeah, plastic the white, thing white table it was like one of those except the inside is just like a ring not if, a solid if disc if you're listening internationally or in new york city a we're sorry for our bad <laughs> accents we don't all talk like that in but America. we're not sorry for our pizza our pizza is far superior i'm sorry i love thin crispy crust pizza i don't care okay we're right and dying with that yeah I, yep we're I'm doing not, that. i'm not um, i'm not mad about I, it I'm at all i'm torn on this because i love a good slice from uh wait, that you fold but square would, pizza is the thing but we put this little white topper thing on in the middle of pizza so that the box doesn't like with the heat like drop in and take and the, cheese the cheese off yeah. of the cheese and the toppings off the pizza so oddly enough knoxville back in the day they were one of the last holdouts for allowing wing sprint cars at the racetrack or i'm sorry mandating wing sprint cars at their local races but in the late 60s knoxville was one of the first racetracks that said if you want to run here you have to have a roll cage you have to have some kind of halo cage mm. system And so a lot of drivers went along with that and that became kind of the national standard, but not everybody was on board. Sadly, one guy who ran regularly at Knoxville, local driver by the name of Kenny Greitz, Kenny Greitz won the Knoxville Nationals in 1969. He pulled a major upset. It was a big deal. It's still talked about as one of the biggest upsets in Knoxville Nationals history. Two weeks later, sadly, that man was dead because he went to an IMCA event in Nebraska. And at that, that was like one of the big sprint car bodies before the World of Outlaws was the IMCA. Their rule was the opposite. They said, if you want to run an IMCA event, you cannot have a roll cage because we're real sprint car racers. We're not these, you know, local. You don't tracks. even need a seatbelt. Yeah, right. I mean, they helmets were, are optional. So they they had a rule. Cards or not, they banned safety equipment. Just again, seems very backwards. It was very backwards at this event in Nebraska. Kenny Greitz cut his roll cage out of his car, went out, took his track his car out there because he wanted to race. Sadly, he was killed in a rollover crash. His widow sued IMCA, citing their knowledge that these cages would have made him safer and they were banning them. They were just saying you don't have to run it. They said you can't run it at our tracks. Uh, The IMCA and uh, Ms. Greitz, they settled out of court, but that lawsuit and the climbing death toll made all the major sanctioning bodies and tracks understand they had to mandate safety enhancements like roll cages. Most of them by 1971 had done so. That was seen as having a roll cage that was seen as like, wow, great. Now no, no there's not going to be any good racing anymore because everyone's just going to come to the track. We got all these wusses that don't know how to drive their cars. They're all scared. This was the old school mentality about roll cages was that if you're too scared to have a roll cage, then you shouldn't be at the racetrack and you're probably not a good driver anyway. That obviously 
died out over time, that, that thought process. But that was the idea in the early 70s. So now we get to the late 70s, and it's a different ball game. Now there's such a thing as putting wings over your sprint cars. Derek, do you know where the first wing was ever put on a sprint car? Fremont Speedway. Fremont, no. Ohio. You've been to this racetrack. It no longer exists. Oh, Columbus Motor Speedway. Yeah. Sprint car wings actually date back to 1958 when Jim Cushman won at the Columbus Motor Speedway. He 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 put a wing over his car. In the early 70s, though, many sprint car drivers began to put the wings and the sideboards on both the front and the top of their cars. The added wings increased the downforce generated on the car with the opposite direction of the sideboards helping to turn the car in the corners. By 1978, this guy named Ted Johnson, you may know him from starting the World of Outlaws, he said, my promotion is going to be only for wing sprint cars. So if you come to a World of Outlaws event, you got you have to bring a wing. That's what we do. That's our that's our car. That's what we want. There were still a lot of tracks though that did not require them, especially for the local tracks, like for the local racers. And in some cases, they didn't even allow them. They said, you can't come here with a wing sprint car. We talked about that was, you know, still late 70s. That was still getting sorted out. Uh, 1982, that was where the horrific accidents had been happening at Knoxville, and they had the worst one in May of that year. There were still a lot of people at Knoxville who were dead set, the local drivers, dead set against having a wing. And to understand why, we're going to have to get a little technical. Is that okay with you? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm all about technicalities, math, science. If I just stay silent, I am listening. I'm definitely not tuning out. Okay, this is a good way to make it sound like you're very interested in what we're about I'm very interested. Okay, so a wing on a sprint car, five feet by five feet, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Supposedly, they add downforce. That's what a lot of people think. That's uh, what I think. Which makes the car stick to the ground, sliding through the turns, carrying more speed. And they do carry more speed with a wing than without a wing. We've seen that. You can measure that. That's easy to know. But why are they faster? Well, according to some of the people who've looked into the arrow, and again, I'm talking scientists, not you and me, most of what those wings create at the attack angles they currently sit at, it's not downforce. A lot of them create drag, which sounds similar, but it's different. Drag makes your engine work harder. Downforce with minimal drag makes you go even faster, and it doesn't overtax your engine. So a good way to think of it is if you see a sprint car up on its wheels coming out of the corner with a wing on it, drag is what's doing that, not downforce. Right. Drag is over top of the car, and it's basically pushing the car down. So it operates in a similar fashion as downforce in the application of the sprint car wing. But we really don't know if the benefits from the extra force pushed into the track if that translates to this is as fast as a sprint car could go, or if we made the wings shallower, could they in fact go even faster? And do we want them to do that? That's a whole nother question, yeah. right? Wing sprint cars obviously go much faster. There's additional force on the rear wheels, but it's not really efficient force. The engines have to work a lot harder when you put a wing on because they go faster, but also because of that drag thing that we were talking about right. where it does kind of make them just have to deal with the added weight as well of a giant wing sitting over top of the car. So back in the day, a lot of guys knew that the wing makes it tougher on the engines. Mm -hmm. They blew a lot more engines when they ran with the wing versus when they didn't run with the wing. 
they didn't exactly know about drag coefficients and all that stuff. Not every engine builder at Knoxville, I'm saying, had that knowledge, right. but they just knew it was more expensive to run with a wing. It added stress to their equipment. So the local drivers said, we don't want wing ban- mandates. Don't tell us what to do. We can't afford this if you make us do that. So the drivers didn't like it from the cost perspective. Now, the other question you might be asking is, if they're making the cars faster and the engines are blowing, how is having a wing on a car viewed as being safer? Well, the answer is the wing is a giant crush panel in an accident, as you've seen and I've seen at many wing sprint car races. Mm -hmm. Car flips over. What almost always happens? They land on that wing and the wing gets bent all to hell. Like it, it gets completely smushed. And at first it's like, oh my gosh, look how violent that is. That wing is just destroyed. But that wing being destroyed takes a lot of the energy and shoves it around the driver, not into the driver, Mm -hmm. which is always good. Same thing as we talked about with NASCAR in the past. The more crushable your NASCAR is, the stock car, the more that it's likely to not hurt the driver inside, as opposed to if it's very stiff, all the energy travels into the interior of the car and that can hurt the driver more. Not to say that sprint cars are safe now because of wings. It added to the safety aspect. So the real benefit of a wing car is they are more planted on the track, even if it isn't because of downforce, if it's just because of added weight and drag and everything else. Right. But they're also, they're a little bit faster and they're also much safer. So these are the reasons why a lot of racetracks started to go to wing sprint car races as opposed to non-wing races. And in fact, crucially, that wasn't just some anecdotal opinion at the time. The other factor was insurance companies were giving lower rates to racetracks when they ran a wing sprint car race. Mm. It was much cheaper to insure one of those races than it was to insure a non-wing show. So the track promoters are like, if I make all the drivers put a wing on and sure, they might blow their engines, they might have added costs, but my costs go down. Right. I can put on more shows. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like in some ways, I'm not saying every promoter, I'm not saying Knoxville, but some promoters probably looked at this as, well, I just transfer the cost from the insurance. Now that just goes to the drivers because now yeah. they have more equipment to buy, but that's no skin off their nose and they can put up bigger purses. So now they can add more money to what entices these drivers to come in and the drivers make the changes because they want to go win these bigger purses. Right. Uh, one other thing, though, that the pro wing people had working against them at this time, there's a perception that the racing was much worse with wing cars than non-wing cars. Because the cars were more planted, they could go a little faster, but also they weren't nearly as chaotic. They were more predictable. Mm -hmm. There were fewer wrecks. There were fewer deaths. But most importantly to some race fans, there were fewer cautions, Mm. which was viewed as a bad thing. Because if you don't have cautions, you don't have restarts. You don't have restarts, you don't have tight racing. So the fewer cautions you have, the more strung out the field gets, the more you have shows where one guy's out by three, four car lengths, the next guy's just riding right in his tire treads. So you can kind of see now in the late 70s, 80s where we are. There's a big battle between non-wing sprint cars, wing sprint cars, World of Outlaws were not considered like the best at anything just yet. They were still kind of becoming something of what they are now. So this is the environment we're in in 1982 as we head to Iowa for the Knoxville Nationals. You ready to go? Oh, yeah. All right. Going to Knoxville, Iowa, 1982. We'll take you there when we come back.
Welcome back to the Stagger Podcast. We want to thank all of you for checking it out. Make sure you leave us a review if uh, you'd like to. You can go to Stagger Podcast on Apple Podcasts if you listen via that app. Make sure you leave us a nice review. Uh, we may read it on the show. So how about that? That'd be a lot of fun, right? Yeah. You can hear yourself on on a oh. podcast that you listen to. I don't hey. know if that's of interest to people, but I mean, apparently it is. We'll, we'll do it for free. We would do it for free. That's right. We, we you don't do have it. to. You don't have to pay us to read your review you on know, our podcast. I don't know, know why you would pay us for I that. I think but. we can even throw in a laptop sticker if you give us a review. I think that's something we can. I don't do. know if we can do that because I don't know if I can send out. I I, I, I don't know I how think, to keep track you know of that. I will take it on on me. On, we, we have a couple vintage ones left. We got the new ones with the new logo. You're gonna mail you, them all out. I'm gonna mail them all out. I don't believe you. Well, don't try me. Leave a review. Go on Twitter, Instagram, message us saying, hey, I just left a review. Can I get a sticker? And we will get back with you. We'll need your address, of course. All right. Uh, we'll do that for yeah. the we'll do that for the first 10 people that leave us a review. There how about go. that? Yeah. First about 10 that? people will send you. But you have to send us a proof you did it. And then, yeah, you'll get a, a little sticker screenshot and a little direct message on either Twitter, Instagram. If you have our cell phones somehow, you know, text us, text us. We're yeah. not giving you our cell phones, but if you do have them, uh, go ahead and feel free to reach out. Yep. Mom, we'll you. <laughs> you can just let <laughs> me know, mom, just, mom we'll next time by the house, next time for the cookout. That's we'll fine. Bring some stickers, mom. All right. <laughs> August 15th, 1982. Someone on this podcast was born that weekend, but I'll leave that for you. To it, figure wasn't out. Uh, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Shaggy's over here. This is good. So this race was actually on Sunday. Now, the Knoxville Nationals, as most people know, is usually on Saturday. It's preceded by a bunch of preliminary nights and a bunch of fun racing. If you're going to the Knoxville Nationals, I'm envious of you. I eventually plan to go. Next year is the goal. And next year is almost always the goal. But next year, for sure, I think I'm going to be out there all week because I just want to go. I want to go to the Dingus. I want to go to do all the fun stuff. So Dick Bergeron wrote in Open Wheel Magazine that there was a lot of change that occurred prior to the 1982 Knoxville Nationals. Uh, for one, the barns around the fairgrounds racetrack, which were primarily used as work areas for these racing teams back in the day. In 1982, they weren't using these barns as much. Instead, because there were too many fans, there were prying eyes, they were worried about were guys trying to steal their setups. And also, there were just overall space limitations. You know, there's over 100 sprint cars coming out to this thing every year. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the teams found other locations around town to stash their race cars before the race. They would work in parking lots or even, you know, people's garages, like private homes. So that's when that started to change. Also, other tracks like Eldora in Ohio were starting to offer prize money that rivaled Knoxville. Previously, Knoxville had been the biggest purse in sprint car racing, and in 1982, it was still huge. Think of this. 1982, $100,000 was the total purse for the Knoxville Nationals. $100,000 purse today is a humongous purse right. for a sprint car race. In 1982 dollars, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's and be half a million at least. Yeah. And the, and the, the feature winner got $12,000 mm. in, again, 1982. That is... A $12,000 race in sprint car racing in 2021 is a huge amount of money. 1982, it's even bigger. Uh, this was not, though, the only track starting to put up those big numbers. Like we said, Eldora was doing that. Williams Grove was doing that. Lots of other big sprint car tracks were now saying, hey, we can get some of these you know, outlaw-type races to come here. The third thing that they say changed at Knoxville this year, this is in his article. Dick Bergeron wrote about this. 
the wet t-shirt contest was officially banned by the fair board <laughs> at Knoxville. That was because in 1981, a skin to win chant had upset the town fathers who threatened the entire race. If they didn't ban the wet t-shirt contest, I would just like to point out to people who say like, Oh, back in the good old days, people weren't as scandalous. They didn't do this. Like, crazy TikTok dances and you didn't have all these Instagram models trying to get famous with their booties. It's like yeah, they, you, just, you just had county fairs that had wet t-shirts contest. <laughs> like there was right. and there, Judy, you gonna try to win this year? Oh, I want I got skin, a title to uphold. Hold on a second. Let me let me roll them out. Skin to win, Aunt Judy. Come on, get out there, baby. Like there were no skin good old days. Stop talking about the good old oh. days. I mean, for some people those are the good old days because you're like, yeah, I wish they would do those contests now that's that's a different story i'm just saying for the for the puritans among us who act like back in the day no one ever you just had a little sip of your light beer as you thought about you know how much you could help at your church while watching the sprint car race it's like that's never been the case there was always like an element of racetracks where there was there was debauchery going on that's all i'm saying so There's let's always the let's the not lot lizards and the helmet lickers whatever they call them well, let's all right. 82 Nationals. Yeah. So let's yeah. it was a wild time in 1982. That's what we're saying. So Dick Bergeron, like I said, this article in uh, Open Wheel Magazine, he took all the photos. He wrote the article. There's a reason why this dude was a legend, because he was also writing for Stock Car Magazine at the time as well, which they published Open Wheel Magazine. So this 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 was a legendary racer. He raced his cars, too. But he also, of course, reported Later, would go on to CBS and pit reporting for the Daytona 500 and all that stuff. Bob so anyway. Pockers would say, man, you're working too hard. Please stop. Right. No kidding, man. Yeah. Bob Pockers, one of the hardest working guys in the NASCAR game as far as journalists go. And Dick Bergman was running circles around all these guys. That's yeah. just it was a different time, man. Bob, um, Bob Pockers would be walking in at 7 a.m. to start you know, a race day. And Dick Bergman's there shirtless from the night before going, what took you so long, Bob? Been here all night. Just smoking heaters. Smoking heaters. some Mickeys. With he's his typewriter like, sitting there typing away. I've already got three-fourths of my copy done. What are you doing? Yeah, he already has. You slept until 6 a.m. How dare? Yeah, they, I never I, slept. I'm Dick Bergman. I'm I don't Dick Bergman. I sleep on Tuesdays when there's I, no racing. I sleep in my hat, and that's <laughs> it. I just have my hat. I'm a real man. I take a 15-minute nap. That's all I need for the week. That on black coffees and a pack of heaters every day. I'm good yeah, to go. That's right. Let's read from the legendary scrolls, Derek. Can you go ahead and set the scene because there were quite a few drivers that were in different places. Go ahead yeah, and read. Some we're going to name some there. names here, and some may be familiar, some may not. Let's just roll with it. So on the outside pole, Doug Wolfgang had just left his longtime ride with the Howe family and was behind the wheel of the Stanton car. Jack Hoddenschild, the wild child, was driving the Kenny Rogers Gambler house car. Yes, that Kenny Rogers. Uh, in place of an injured Danny Smith, who was a spectator. Sammy Swindell wrecked his Nance house car earlier in the week and was driving a backup Jensen construction car. Bobby Davis Jr. was driving the Weikert car, recently vacated by regular driver Keith Kaufman. Jimmy Seals put the 0-1, formerly driven by Leland McSpadden, in the third quick spot. Jack Hewitt was in Wolfgang's old ride, and it was all very interesting. If there was a challenger for Kenzer's position as pre-race favorite, it was Doug Wolfgang driving the Stanton house car, which is no slouch. Wolfgang was as familiar with Knoxville as a mother is with her baby's cry. He was the track's best racer when he pulled out years ago to go on the road. He periodically drops in, wins more often than not, and the fans love him. 
Wolfgang's wide open style suits Knoxville perfectly for its fast way around this joint. A little uh, reading from the Sacred Scrolls there of Open Wheel Magazine, Dick Berggren. And all racing fans said? Skin to win. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to see Sammy Swindell. (laughs) Bring it back, Knoxville. Bring it back. Skin to win. Jack Hoddenshield. Skin to no, I don't think they, I don't think Jack's I think doing he was it. called the wild child. I don't think he's I don't think he's taking his shirt off. And that's okay. You don't need to you know what? You don't need to do that when you're as talented as those drivers are. You don't need to take your shirt off. So let's talk about a couple of guys you mentioned there, because yes, there's a lot of good names. There's a lot of great drivers we could spend hours talking about, but let's just focus on two of them because they're the primary focus of this race in nineteen eighty two. First off, let's talk about Doug Wolfgang, aka Wolfie. He would go on to win five Knoxville Nationals in his career. At this time, though, he had won two Knoxville Nationals. So in his career, Doug Wolfgang won a total of 481 sprint car races for 17 car owners in 29 states at 105 tracks. He is fifth all-time in wins with 140 feature wins in the World of Outlaws series. Wow. From 81 to 86 at the Knoxville Nationals, Doug Wolfgang finished third twice, second twice, and won it twice. So he had that track pretty well known in 1982. It's like a 1.6 average finish. Yeah, I didn't know there was going to be math involved in this, but that's great. Well, you were the one talking about technology and, and coefic- drag coefficients. That's right. I didn't um, know we were getting into all this math either, but now you got me going. Yeah, so Doug Wolfgang, a Knoxville fan favorite. He ran that track a lot in the 70s as his home track. He's actually from South Dakota, but that was like his track in the 70s. He went there a lot. Eventually, he tagged with the World of Outlaws, kind of went and followed them, traveling all over. In the 80s, he actually moved out to Pennsylvania and was running that Weikert machine, which that sponsorship is still on that car even to this day. Um, So a lot of legendary drivers have driven that. Doug Wolfgang, one of them. He was beloved in Iowa. He was beloved in Pennsylvania when he went out there. Just a fantastic sprint car driver in the Sprint Car Hall of Fame, which, of course, is in Knoxville, Iowa. Meanwhile, Steve Kinzer was at this time the up and comer who had already arrived, but he was still a younger driver. So he began running with the World of Outlaws in 1978, which is, of course, when they were founded. Kinzer is, I mean, I don't know if you're listening to this. You sought out a sprint car podcast. I don't think I need to explain who Steve Kinzer is to you, but for those who are just regular listeners of our show who don't really watch a lot of sprint car racing, maybe you've heard the name. Steve Kinzer is the greatest sprint car driver of all time. He won 20 World of Outlaws championships. He won 690 A features in the World of Outlaws and a record-setting 12 knoxville nationals so this man was and is a legend just he's the goat he is the goat. i mean i you can argue that he is the greatest race car driver america has ever produced i think that's i think that's a fair discussion point i'm not saying he is i'm saying you can have that discussion you put him in the same category with aj foyt you put him up there with anybody you want to this man is to me as legendary as it gets i think we're gonna have to have a special episode a lot of beer and, a, and maybe even an arm wrestle and some guests because I feel that to be called the best driver in American history, you have to drive on something more than just dirt. Well, good news. He drove in NASCAR. So, oh, <laughs> well, therefore, I need to get to the history book. You know what? We should save it for the off season. We That's where we need to get some. The need to get some beers let's and put a pin let's, in it. Let's put a pin in it for the beers off season, at buddy. 8 a.m. Kegs and eggs. We'll talk NASCAR and sprint car racing history. 
who crossed over and who is the best driver in American history. That's right. I think we should definitely do that. Back to 1982, at this point in his career, Steve Kinzer was the defending two-time winner of the Nationals in 80 and 81. Those, though, had both been run without a wing. So the World of Outlaws did shows. This is kind of confusing. World of Outlaws did shows in Knoxville with wings on them. So wing sprint cars did run at Knoxville. They weren't banned. But the local shows never had wings. And the Knoxville Nationals never had wings until 1982. That's when they changed it. But the World of Outlaws and Steve Kinzer had won races at Knoxville under a wing. Just they weren't the Knoxville Nationals. They weren't the Knoxville Nationals. Yeah. So like they're like the World of Outlaws in 2021, they were in Knoxville earlier in the year for a different race that isn't the Knoxville Nationals. Yeah. This is just now the Knoxville Nationals, the World of Outlaws, and everybody else shows up for that. But it's not primarily just a World of Outlaws show. At least in 1982, it wasn't. It was just, you know, you have 100 cars showing up. It's everybody. Anybody who, who wants to go out there does. Doug Wolfgang had won two previous races. Like I said, those also had been won without a wing. So now we're going to find out who's the best of these two. These are two of the best drivers out there with the wing on the car. So, Derek... Let's go back to the scrolls of Berggren, if you don't mind, and let's talk about how this race actually went. Here's what Dick Berggren had to say about it in Open Wheel Magazine in 1982. Kinzer started on the pole. Wolf was outside. When the green dropped, Wolf went deeper into the first turn than Kinzer and beat him clean on an outside pass. Later, Kinzer complained that there was water on the track in the low groove and that he slipped in it. But Wolfgang's lead was as short-lived as Bobby Davis Jr.'s fling at the Nationals. Before one lap was in, Davis coasted into the second turn and stopped, causing a yellow, which in turn caused a complete restart in which Wolfgang was forced back to the second spot. On the restart, Kenzer blew into the first turn, clearly ahead of Wolfgang. From that point until the checkered flag flew, there were no more caution flags. Normally, Kenzer, a picture of subdued control, he seldom smiles at all, and when he does, generally it's somewhat forced. Yet when he arrived near victory lane, his left hand shot up in the air in joy, and he let out a rebel yell that the entire grandstand could hear above the noise of the cars, still trying to make it to the checkered. Kinzer first grabbed his mechanic, Elrod, and hugged him. Then the car owner and chief mechanic, Carl Kinzer, stuck his head inside the cage, and the two Kinzers hugged each other emotionally, slapping each other on the back, proclaiming, We done it. We done it. What they'd done was win three nationals back-to-back, something no other team had ever done before. Kenny Weld won in 64 and 65, but was third in 66. Eddie Levitt won in 75 and 76, but was third in 77. When Wolfgang won his first two in a row, Schumann won in 79, denying Wolfgang the three straight. According to Steve Kenzer, we got going good here when we got upside down three years ago. We got it together then. Yeah, so in 1980, when Steve Kinzer wrecked, uh, apparently Bob Trossel, who was one of the legendary driver or owners at, at Knoxville, and he was one of the guys who famously said, I'm not coming back here to Knoxville until you put wings on the car after they had the May wreck. But he apparently helped the Kinzers out, build a car after they had wrecked, build a car basically from spare parts, and Steve Kinzer went out and won in 1980. So here's another thing about the Knoxville Nationals in 1980. It was a dry track in the daytime due to fog the night before. They had to cancel the race and put it on Sunday. They had no wings then, dry racetrack, super dusty. 1981, they said it was a perfect night for racing, but again, no wing. But totally different track than 1980. Now in 1982, it was another Sunday afternoon show, but this time 
because it had rained so much, the track was extremely wet and tacky, and they had the wings. So this is why I say the 1982 Knoxville Nationals are one of the most important races in sprint car history, because Steve Kinzer, as we laid out earlier, went on to become the Steve Kinzer that we all know, arguably the greatest driver in American racing history, or one of the three or four. But at the time of this race in 1982, he was just another really good sprint car driver. You know, he was up there with Doug Wolfgang and some of these other guys were running. Sammy Swindell's running at the time, and he was also on his way to becoming a legend. This was, I think, one of the first races where everyone kind of realized, oh, wait a second. Steve Kinzer might be just some level better than even the best sprint car drivers. And because he had won three in a row with a wing, without a wing, dusty track, tacky track, great track, didn't matter. He won them. This, I think, is one of the races that really put him on the map. Derek, if you look at the cover of that article, the cover page, that article I printed out for you, Mm -hmm. um, there's a quote from Doug Wolfgang that he said at the very tail end of this race. Can you read that quote about what he said about Steve Kinzer? Ain't he just the toughest son of a bitch you ever met in your life? Yeah. So it's like this, even the legend guys were like, this Steve Kinzer dude is just, I can't be mad at him. He's just so freaking good. So that's why I say 1982 Knoxville Nationals, it started to really lay out who Steve Kinzer was, what he was going to be. I think it put him on a different level. It obviously changed. Now you think of the Knoxville Nationals, you don't think of a non-wing show. Right. You think of wing sprint cars. But I mean, heck, even sprint cars in general, you think of, you think of hey, wing sprint cars. I'm going cars. to a sprint car race. I remember one time we went to Waynesfield. I just assumed it was a wing race. Yeah. And they had the Boss Series and the, uh, the uh, Attica Fremont Series that was running there. And it was cool to see the dual show. That was the first time I've ever seen non-wing sprint cars, and it was a different racing style. Yeah, and, and I, I will tell you, a lot of people at this time were not fans of the racing. They thought it was bad racing. Now, like, you can't hardly imagine Kings Royal, any of these other yeah. races being run without a wing, but this is, this is the time period of change that we were talking about. So the, the sprint car racing we have now, the wing sprint cars that we have now, good, bad, or otherwise... The 1982 Knoxville Nationals are one of the reasons why we have it. It was it was a pretty great moment. I guess I'll leave you with this, Derek. What do, what do we think of Knoxville 1982 um, now that you know the history? And are you excited for the Knoxville Nationals this year? Yeah, I'm I'm very excited for the Knoxville Nationals, and I'm going to have a deeper appreciation knowing what uh, the 82 race did for the track, um, did for the sport and did for the landscape of racing in America because it took NASCAR 20 years from this point almost to value safety in a way that sprint cars had this internal battle in their own ranks within the 80s. And it took a lot of people dying for them to try to make changes. And I remember seeing guys wearing safety devices on their chest and harnesses and things like that way before I saw anyone in NASCAR adopt it. And I keep going back to NASCAR because that's that that's that series that as a kid we every Sunday we go to well, church. You're, you're right. We go to church. We come we come back. One o'clock comes on. The race comes on. You're you're fighting a nap, but you're watching the race because you got all the legends out there: Bill Elliott, Dale Jarrett, Dale Earnhardt. That was my childhood watching those guys drive. You know, and then Benny Parsons on the call, Ned Jarrett on the call, the Ken Squire. So that's what I grew up watching. But I remember also seeing these little snippets here and there on TNN of these crazy cars. They had these weird wings on the top, and they would just go super fast in these like dimly lit tracks. And now that I'm in my 30s and live in one of the hotbeds of sprint car racing in the state of Ohio, 
we're within two hours. We were just talking before the show today. You're going to go see a sprint car race this weekend. I Why? Am. Because we're two hours away from the track. We're, yeah, that's we're an like, hour that's from another track. We're I, two hours from a track down the south. Yeah. We got I Eldora think, two, two hours or hour to the uh, west, hour and a half to the west. So we got options. We can always see sprint car racing. And that's something where I would say sprint cars are probably my second most favorite series that I watch now because it's accessible. Get out to a sprint car race if you can. And now I hope you've learned and appreciated some of the changes that were made. And I think honestly, it's made the racing better. I, I see. That's where I was going to go to. I think I will take a race with fewer cautions. If it also means fewer ambulances, that's where I come down on it. I mean, and I, I have so much respect for the macho man, Brady bacon and, you know, Chad boat. And some of these other guys who've been driving these non-wing cars, you know, there's just so many talented drivers out there that are Dave Darlin, right? I think mm-hmm. is another legendary non-wing guy. There's so many talented drivers in the non-wing side of things, but I also respect what the sport is now with the wing. I think, I think having that option is great. And I think the wing sprint cars do add just that extra little bit of speed yeah. that makes it a little bit more exciting for me. But yeah. it's, it's really fascinating to read these old things. And I will, this is the last thing I will say about this. You're right. Get to your tracks, go to a dirt race, go to a sprint car race. All those are true. I would tell you, if nothing else, find a year, find the year you were born. Presumably, you weren't following the media when you were an infant. If you like racing, go find a circle track, an open wheel, stock car magazine. Just find one of the old race car magazines that was printed the month or the year that you were born buy it and read it because this is the year i was born 1982 i don't know much about that now i've been able to read through this magazine and just really get a sense of what it was all about and all it makes me want to do is just go back and learn more about the history so hopefully this has piqued your interest a little bit i think those are great resources definitely go find those open wheel magazines on ebay and uh yeah buy one read through it and enjoy because they're there's they're really a part of history and i think we need to preserve that Absolutely. And I'll tell you this much, there are still safety issues with sprint car racing, but I think the cars themselves are getting safer. Now, if we can just update these county tracks and these little fairgrounds to have styrofoam around every barrier, to have runoff areas, to have areas where you got fencing that's high enough to keep cars from boil, you know, going over the track, we can have these, inc- these, these instances where we don't have you know people dying on a racetrack anymore, which is the goal, right? That's the goal. We, we all want to see the racing we want to see the spectacle but we don't want to see people carted off in ambulances or worse so that's i think the challenge for sprint car racing and all racing is to look at their tracks well said there by derek that is it for this week's episode of the podcast thank you so much for checking out our look back on the 1982 knoxville nationals if you are someone who enjoyed this podcast hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening on you can also follow us on twitter and instagram at stagger podcast And as my brother said, Derek is going to send out stickers to the first 10 people who leave a review for us on Apple Podcast. So do that, get a screenshot of it, and then hit us up in the DMs. They're open, at Stagger Podcast on Twitter. Let us know you did it, and uh, we'll work out the details to get you some stickers as a thank you for helping other people find out about our podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, and that new episode will be about A NASCAR star who I think is severely misunderstood. That is Lee Roy Yarbrough. 
We're going to talk about him next time on Stagger. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.